God met man in a narrow place. That's the opening line to a poem written by one of my favorite authors. And I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I was overwhelmed by a fear of the Lord. God met man in a narrow place. That, that made me squirm a little bit. It made me feel a little of what Adam and Eve must have felt like when they were hiding from God in the garden. That God would meet us in a narrow place where there's, there's no room, there's no hiding. And then I started to wonder, like, is it a narrow place because it is objectively, measurably narrow? Or is it narrow because any place that God fills is going to feel narrow to us? She goes on in that poem to imagine a conversation between God and man where God tells Manly, look, I have not been exacting or hard on you. The command to follow me and obey me was not meant to be heavy. And man says, that's easy for you to say, you are strong, but I am weak. And God says, okay, I'll set aside my strength and I'll take on your weakness. This is the story of God meeting man in a narrow place. The story of the time that God became a man and the men that he made hated him because he proved himself to be a better man than they were. And so they broke him and they killed him. But before we open up to Luke 23, I just want to share with you real quick one passage that I think is one of the most astounding passages in all of Scripture. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So that you may become partakers of the divine nature. If that wasn't in scripture, that would almost sound heretical. Right? Yet, yes, the church is Christ's bride. We've been united with him in his death and his resurrection. He's given us his righteousness. But it almost sounds too much to say we've become partakers of the divine nature. Right? That's what got us in trouble in the first place, right? Adam and Eve believed the devil's lie that they could become like God. That if they stood up for themselves, took what they needed, then they could take his place on the throne and they could be like him. And that, that great lie found fertile soil in our hearts. And it took root and produced fruit a thousand times over. All of the troubles in this world all of the pain and the death and disease and brokenness and tragedy has all come about through that belief in the lie and our misplaced desire to make ourselves like him. And yet the very thing that we tried to steal from him, 
He's given to us freely. And the gospel wasn't God's backup plan. He wasn't taken aback or surprised by humanity's rebellion against him. The gospel isn't the story of God trying to fix a mistake. It's the story of an infinitely good and holy and righteous God who is also infinitely generous, desiring to share himself with us. But no created being could ever, by the nature of being a created being, be enough to share in him. And so he allowed the jewel of his creation to fall. And not just to fall, but to dive headlong into the depths of sin and despair so that he could rescue us in the only way possible. By diving into the depths with us, giving himself to us and drawing us back up to him. This is the focal point of all of human history and all of scripture. The most beautiful, ugly, wonderful, horrible day in all of creation. And yet in stark contrast to that, the actual workings out of that great day were just kind of like grubby and tawdry and and honestly kind of pathetic. On the one hand, this is the ultimate story of good versus evil. The son of God versus the prince of darkness. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. On the other hand, the people who killed him weren't part of some grand, dark, mysterious conspiracy made up of the most powerful, influential people on the planet. It was just a group of local strongmen who liked being the big fish in a very small pond and didn't like him upsetting the status quo. They liked being the big fish in the little pond, and they weren't even very good at it. They finally caught Jesus after years of trying to figure out how they could put an end to him. And once they get a hold of him, they realize they have no idea what to do next. They have him. They have witnesses who are willing to lie and make things up, but they can't even agree on what they should say. This is turning out to be the worst conspiracy ever. But they're so enraged, all they know is they finally have him, and so they have to make it work. Jesus must die. And so after a night of beating and mocking him, they bring him to Pilate. In Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate answered him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. The first charge is a pretty vague one, misleading a nation. But even in that, we see just how much sin twists and perverts things. Jesus said, I am the truth. Not just I speak the truth, but I am the truth. 
Anything that is true finds its truthness in me. And yet the first charge they bring against truth incarnate is he's misleading the people. And the next charge is just a flat-out lie. Jesus never forbade the Israelites from paying tribute to Caesar. They had tried to trap him with that one. And that's when Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. And the last accusation that he calls himself a king is just as misleading. Jesus is king, but his kingdom is not a worldly one, and he never tried to set himself up as one. In fact, he actively avoided letting the people make him a king. But he is a king. He's a king who's being charged with rebellion and insurrection. He is the king of kings, the Lord of all creation, but he willingly set that title and position aside for us. He is the one of ultimate authority. He can't commit rebellion. And yet his people charge him with insurrection. This is how pervasive and perverting sin is. They actually think that Jesus is the rebel. We've believed so thoroughly in the lie that we should be like God, that we should have his place, that if he doesn't give us what we want, we think the problem's with him, that he's not holding up his end of the bargain. He's the one who's causing the problems. We all fully believe the lie that we can be our own God. And so we treat the king like a rebel. And so Pilate questioned Jesus. And you have to remember that Pilate was not going to be an impartial judge at this trial. Rome was far less concerned with justice in its provinces than it was with maintaining the status quo. Pilate didn't care who was at fault. He just couldn't afford another riot in Jerusalem. He'd already been in hot water before for letting things get out of hand in Palestine. And so he absolutely would have been biased towards finding Jesus guilty. Like, oh, there's a rebel. Let's just deal with him. Be done with it. Look, Rome, I got things under control here in Jerusalem. And yet even Pilate can see that Jesus is innocent. Verse 4. Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And I think that's where they made their mistake. Because they mentioned that he was doing all this up in Galilee. And Pilate, who found himself between a rock and a hard place because a riot caused by the Pharisees and the chief priests letting, uh, over him letting Jesus go would be just as bad as a riot caused by people who thought Jesus was a king, sees a way out. In a move straight out of the bureaucratic handbook, Pilate goes, 
well, you know, if he's from Galilee, that's not my jurisdiction. That's Herod's. And, you know, Herod just happens to be in town, so, I, you know, I, I don't want to overstep my bounds. You should really take him over to Herod. And Pilate had to be hoping that Herod was going to pull another stunt like he did with that crazy prophet in the desert, John, and just behead him so Pilate wouldn't have to worry about it. And Herod, for his part, was happy to have Jesus brought to him, not out of any sense of justice, but because he wanted to see signs. When Pilate learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wasn't interested in Jesus' claims of being the Christ. He wasn't interested in seeing justice done. He was looking for party tricks. He wanted to be entertained by Christ. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Figured if he's not going to do any tricks for me, try to salvage my opportunity and get as much entertainment as I can out of him. And so he, he arrays Jesus in royal clothing. Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arraying him in splendid clothing. Jesus, who had spent all of eternity robed in glory and in righteousness, is given a king's robe and mocked for it. Look at the king and all his finery. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, much to Pilate's chagrin, I'm sure. And the Pharisees had to be growing impatient by now. This was supposed to be quick and easy and over with. And the politicians are playing their games, trying to pass the buck. They wanted this dealt with quickly before the crowds realized what was happening and rallied in support of Jesus. They were running out of time. And when they return to Pilate, Pilate tries to reason, them, reason with them again in verse 14. He said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. He says, look, I didn't find anything wrong with him. Herod didn't find anything wrong with him. We know about rebels and insurrectionists. If he was the troublemaker you said he was, we would have picked up on it. But I'm not unreasonable. He's upset you. And so he's upset the status quo. And it is Passover. I always release a prisoner for you at the festival. So let me just beat him, teach him a lesson, show him his place, 
and then I'll release them and we can all go about our lives again. The chief priests and the Pharisees would have none of it, though. They'd come too far. They've waited too long for this opportunity. We don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. Barabbas, who, by the way, was an actual rebel and insurrectionist. But the rebel was set free, and the king was executed for treason. It's not found here in Luke's account, but John records Pilate asking them, look, do you really want me to execute your king? And the chief priests respond, we have no king but Caesar. And just think about how astounding that claim actually is. Israel hated Rome. They hated being under Caesar's heel. They wanted to be free from Rome more than anything. Well, not anything. It was better to be free of Christ than free of Rome. And it goes deeper than that. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Israel told Samuel when they first demanded a king in 1 Samuel 8. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Caesar is your only king? It was Caesar who parted the Red Sea for you. It was Caesar that rained down manna from heaven in the desert. It was Caesar that protected you when you were in exile. You wanted a king to fight your battles and to protect you from your enemies. You wanted a king who would give you victory. And now the choice is laid out before you. Your God or your enslaver. And you chose Rome over Christ. And the great irony, of course, is this is the moment when their king is fighting their battle for them. And they're blind to it, though, and so they whip the crowd up into a frenzy, and they all begin to shout, crucify him, crucify him. And this is what Pilate was afraid of all along. This riot is just as bad as a riot in favor of Jesus. And he can't afford for the higher-ups in Rome to get mad at him again for another rebellion in, in Jerusalem. And so he releases the rebel and hands the innocent king over to be crucified. And Jesus is brought to Golgotha, the place of the skull, outside of the city. You know, John 1 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled with us. John was drawing his readers' minds back to when God gave the instructions for the tabernacle to be built. And God was saying, this is how I am going to live among you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. But now God has tabernacled with us in an even greater way, an even more intimate way. He has took on our flesh and lived amongst us. He has come into the camp 
And what did we do? We drove him out and killed him. And as awful as that was, there was no other way. When God instituted the Day of Atonement, he instructed Aaron to take a goat and to confess all of the sins of the people on it and to drive it out of their midst into the wilderness to die. It bore their sins away from them. And on the ultimate day of atonement, Jesus took on the sins of his people and he took them out of their midst into the wilderness to destroy them far away from us. And everything about this day is just so incongruous. Jesus is hung on a cross between two thieves. But we're the thieves. We're the ones who stole the fruit. We were the ones who tried to steal his throne. What had he ever stolen from us? Nothing except for the sin and death he'd taken on. The one who clothes us in his righteousness was stripped naked. The robe that had healed the sick was gambled away by soldiers. And the crowd mocked him. He saved others, let him save himself. If you're the chosen one, come down from the cross. You're always talking about how much your father loves you. Let's see it. And what's Christ's response to all of this? All of the pain and injustice and the mockery? Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Sure seems like they knew what they did. And yet Jesus says, Father, they're so blinded by that lie They can't even see what's right in front of them. Father, forgive them. Even in the middle of all of that pain and the mockery, and as he's sitting under the crushing weight of sin, his mercy and compassion for us did not falter as he's slowly being tortured to death, as he's growing weak and gasping for breath, he still loves the people he came to save. And to further prove that his mercy hasn't come to an end, even on the cross, we see him extend it to one of the criminals who were hanged with him, who just moments earlier had been mocking him, rebuked the other thief who was still mocking Christ. So do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Jesus is overflowing with mercy and compassion to the very end. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. The sun ceased to shine in the middle of the day from about noon till three. And why did the sun's light fail? Well, I think part of it is Amos prophesied that the day of the Lord would be a day of darkness, that day of terror when God's judgment is set loose on the world would be dark. And that day hasn't happened yet, but at the same time, it has for Christ. He has experienced on the cross all of the terrifying realities of the day of the Lord, the wrath and the judgment that will consume the heavens and the earth were poured out on him. You know, I'm in the prophets right now in my daily reading. And there are large chunks of the prophets that make us really uncomfortable. It's page after page of never-ending pronouncements of judgment and wrath. God hates sin, and it is never more clear than in the prophets. And you read a book like Jeremiah, and sometimes it can feel like a slog. And the weight of it is oppressive. You start feeling like you're never going to come to the end of the judgment and the anger and get back to the grace and the mercy and the parts we like a lot better. And the reality is we've only ever felt a fraction of God's judgment for our sin. But Jesus absorbed it all. And so the next time you read through the prophets, don't just think, I'm glad I don't have to experience that. When can we get back to the grace part? Consider the fact that Jesus did experience it. Page after page of seemingly never-ending wrath and judgment, the hatred of our sin, of my sin, that oppressive, suffocating weight, like I can't get out from under this. And Jesus took on it all in a moment. Our sin deserves an eternity of death and hell, each of our sins. And yet Jesus hung on the cross and absorbed an eternity's worth of wrath in that moment. In that moment, the Father didn't see the Son in whom he was well pleased. He saw the evil, destructive, cancerous sin of an entire people, a sin that couldn't be allowed to continue, a sin that had to be cut off. Jesus had spent an eternity in the Father's presence. The delight that the Father took in him and the delight he took in doing the will of the Father was literally life to him. Yet the Father looked on him in that moment with anger and hatred. And for the first time in eternity, he turned his face away from his son. 
That's what killed Jesus. Not just the mechanics of the crucifixion. A crucifixion was a brutally slow way of killing someone. I mean, think about it. It's just a couple of nails in your hands and your feet. How is that going to kill you? As a person hung on the cross, the way that they hung down from their arms would restrict their lungs' capacity for filling with air. So you'd have to push yourself up on the nail in your feet to make room for your lungs to expand again. And the weaker you got from exposure and dehydration and just the beating that you took beforehand made it harder and harder to lift yourself up. And so you slowly suffocated to death, gasping for breath. It could take days to die from a crucifixion. And Jesus died in just a few hours. That's why everyone was so surprised, why Pilate was shocked that Jesus was already buried. It's why the soldier pierced him with the spear in his side. They couldn't believe he was dead, but he was dead because it wasn't just the crucifixion that killed him. It was the Father's anger towards our sin. It was the judgment that we deserved, the death that belonged to us that killed him. Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Even at the end, when the father had turned his face away from his beloved son and poured out his wrath on him, Jesus knew that he had done his father's will. He had drunk the cup of bitterness absorbed the wrath and that he could now return to his father's side. We all know the story doesn't end here. Our passage this morning ends with the crucifixion, but the story doesn't stop. God had told Adam and Eve that if they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. They ate and they did die. They were cut off from the Father, cut off from their life. Sin leads to death. That's the way death works. Death is the direct result of disobedience. Yet when Jesus died for the first time in creation, death was the result of obedience, not disobedience. And it broke death. This is the focal point of our lives. Jesus has taken all of our sin and shame and guilt and borne it on the cross for us. It is dead and buried. He is resurrected to a new life. And Paul reminds us in Romans 6 that if we've been united with him in a death like his, then we will surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. We are united with Christ. We share in his righteousness. He has made us partakers of his divine nature, given us what we tried to steal from him. And we will enjoy his presence and the delight of the Father for all of eternity.
But for now, we still live here. And even though we've been freed from the slavery of sin, that lie is still rooted deeply in us. We're still under the effects of our sin. We're not yet free from the presence of our sin or from the accusations of the devil. And he loves to try to weigh down God's people with the guilt and the shame of their sin. There are times when you are going to feel the, like the weight of your sin is crushing your soul. Times when you feel terrified at the thought of standing before God naked and exposed like Adam and Eve. Terrified at the idea of meeting God in a narrow place. Times when all you can hear are the accusations ringing in your ears. Remember Christ. Remember the cross. Martin Luther once said, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. And if in the moment of being under that crushing weight that's too long to remember, Luther also said a little more pithily, the devil says, you are a sinner. And I say, yes. And Jesus died to save sinners. And with the devil's own sword, I cut off his head. Remember Christ. Remember the cross. I want to close with Romans 8. Just as a reminder of who we are in Christ. Who we are because of the cross. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Remember, Israel wanted a king who would fight their battles for them. Our king has fought and won 
It's when you fall, when you fail, when you feel defeated, know that your king has already defeated sin and death. Remember that you are more than conquerors in him who loved you. And remember that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from his love. The cross and the grave couldn't do it. Nothing else can. Let's pray. Father, Martin Luther also said to one of his friends, sin boldly, but approach the throne of grace more boldly still. Lord, we are sinners. We are all rebels and traitors. We believe the lie that we could take what we wanted, that we could take your throne and set ourselves up as our own little gods. Lord, the cross is what we deserve. And yet we approach your throne of grace boldly knowing that Christ has died for us, that he has freely given us of himself. So we praise you, Father, for your plan of redemption, and we praise the Son whose name has been exalted above every name, the only name that is life and hope for us. So we come to you in the name of Christ. Amen.